Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Does anyone love God because of who he is, or do we love him for what we can receive from him? I am asking you a Job-type question, and it is a, a huge question. Now, of course, I'm not implying that there's anything wrong with the things that we get from the Lord, because we should ask God for stuff. I mean, salvation, for example. Please, God, save me. This is what I want for you. But there is a priority with all our relationships. Maybe you can think about it this way. Do you enter into a friendship for what we can get out of the friendship, or are we primarily interested in being with and serving that other person? I ask that question when I do premarital counseling. Why do you want to marry this person? Well, if the question is, or the answer is primarily what's in it for me, then I got some bad news for you. That marriage relationship is not going to go well. And so pertaining to God, it is vital, I think, from time to time to examine the, the quality of our faith that was the accusation of Satan. Uh, he was examining the, the quality of Job's faith. Of course, uh, I'm, I'm really giving him too much credit, but that is exactly what was going on. We want to make sure that our relationship with God, that the reasons for it are, are transcendent over self-interest. Our self-interest in our relationship with God or relationship with any other person, that cannot be the primary thing. And when it comes to God, enjoying the beauty of knowing Him and, and who He is, those are two good reasons to have a relationship with Him. Hello, everybody. This is Rick Thomas. We're doing a little Life Over Coffee. I want to talk about, in fact, I've titled it this way, three keys to help you look beyond your suffering. And so imagine if you're in some Job-like suffering or suffering beyond your ability to handle it. That's the way it feels to you. We really need to have a perspective to look beyond our suffering, especially when our suffering is not changing. Because if you enter into a relationship, in this case, a relationship with God, and suffering comes into your life, we could fall into that big category of people who have said, I tried Christianity, but it did not work for me. Well, that's an individual who went into the relationship for what they could get out of it. There has to be a better, a better reason, a better motivation than that. And so I want to talk about three keys to look beyond your suffering because, well, we're going to suffer. And so if we're going to suffer, we want to suffer with God. And so we want to have a perspective of who God is, and we want to have the right motivation for being in that relationship. Or when suffering comes, we may want to bolt. And so how do we get to that transcendent place in our relationship with God of loving Him in such a way that it does rise above self-interest? Well, to get there is not smooth, and it's not painless, and that's why the devil's accusation about Job's motivation for a relationship with God, it resonates 
with us too. If I were not so cynical about Satan, I would give him the benefit of the doubt for asking such a question because I do understand the motivations of my own heart. I mean, parents understand this problem too. Children are famous for being self-interested. Not just self-interested, but children will use the relationship that they have with their parents to accomplish whatever whim may be wafting through their little brains. What they want from us is more precious to them than being with us. Now, again, parents understand this. Somebody has to be the mature person in the room. And so we accept this as part of being a parent, knowing that children's motivations are not always pure. Well, praise God, he's the mature one in the room, knowing that our motivations can be less transcendent than self-interest, that loving us more than him, uh, many times uh, that can be our primary interest in the relationship. Out of necessity, being with us is essential for, for children to get something from us. And so we like the idea of them being with us, but but too often being with us is just a a process or a corollary for them to get something from us. Christians love the Lord, but we are not so self-deceived to discount our tenacious self-loyalty. And so that brings us back to my question, why? Why do we serve the Lord? Now, don't worry, this is not a pass-fail test, and I'm not trying to trick you or put you on any kind of guilt trip. No, not at all. I don't want you to go down that road but it is a query to assess where we are in our Christian maturation process. I mean, isn't that good? Isn't that necessary to assess where we are? We don't want to be that forever child that's always manipulating the parent for what we can get out of it. I mean, at some point, the child has to grow up and say, Mom, Dad, I just love you and I just appreciate you. And there's no strings attached. I mean, if we don't know that there is something wrong with us or our need to change, guess what? We're not going to change. And though the devil was wrongly motivated when uh, talking about Job, we're not like that. We want to engage our motives the right way. We want to entertain the possibility of having more self-interest regarding our walk with the Lord. You see, personal regeneration does not fully dislocate our depravity or our penchant for self-loyalty. There's always other motives lurking in imperfect hearts. Now, you, you have to be comfortable with that to some degree. If you expect your motivations about all things, in this case, your relationship with the Lord, to be perfectly pure, where well, you're going to be perfectly disappointed because we are depraved souls. We're not entirely sanctified, and so our hearts will never be perfect regarding our motivations for the Lord. And so as we assess our motivations, we do want to understand that, but we also want to change if there, if there is a need to change. There's always motives lurking in imperfect hearts. Nobody is free from sin's temptations. The complicating twist is that we want to be free from the complexities of our souls, but we do not want to go through the process because we intuitively know that suffering is the process to be purified. 
You say, well, I want pure motives. Yes, I do. I don't want to be that person with imperfect motives with my relationship with God. But you know that the portal that you have to go through to purify those motives is suffering. It's the most effective way for us to be free from ourselves. The sun's heat bearing down on us is an excellent disinfectant. But who wants to sit under the unrelenting heat, experiencing his purifying fire? Peter thought about these things as he penned a few words to calibrate our minds to our real needs. He said this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And so here we are, Job is being tested, and we want to put ourselves in Job's chair, hypothetically. Job said in 42.5, as he's nearing the end of his story, he says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He has gone through the purifying fire. His motives have been tested. Do I love God just for what he can do for me, what he can give me? Is it really true what I said way back there? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, let's just test that out and see if it works. And so here we are in 42.5 now. And he's saying, I've heard of you by the hearing of the year, but now my eye sees you. Nothing will draw out true motivations like personal suffering. Refining fire refines the soul. When God throws us into the crucible of suffering, every good and every, every bad thing in us will eventually be made known. Like the, the uninterrupted tumbling of a clothes dryer, nothing can hide from the heat or the hurt bringing us to a good and satisfying end. And so as you exa examine the sanctifying power of your most recent difficulty, and maybe that's a good way to ask the question about the motivation of your heart, uh, think about something that maybe you're going through right now. For those of you who have gone through it, think about your most recent difficulty. What was drawn from your heart? what was brought to your attention. For example, suffering may reveal undisclosed anger. Suffering may reveal fear. Those are the two common things that happen when suffering comes into our life. It identifies a weakness in our faith. I mean, how easy is it to trust God when things are going swell? Remember the accusation of Satan? Let a little trouble into our lives and our faith will rise and, and it will conquer the complexity. Or let a little trouble in our lives and the complexity will dislodge what we thought we believed about God. It's a dilemma. The dilemma is that we want to, we want to be free from these contrivances of the soul. 
But the fear, we fear the process that leads to our emancipation. I want to be free, but I don't want to suffer to go through that portal to experience my freedom. And so the tension is our angst which can freeze us from doing anything about what's wrong with us. We need sovereign engagement and the accompanying clarity that helps us learn the lessons that we are supposed to learn through the hard times that comes into our lives. Job went to the Lord's counseling office that like any good counselor, The Lord drew from Job's heart what Job needed to know. Collected together, the Lord asked Job 70 questions when Job went to the counselor's office. You remember in chapters 38, 39, 40, over 70 questions. And all of those questions can be summed up by talking about what he he knew through the ear gate. But now he sees clearly through the eye gate. That's why at the end of the counseling session with Job, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Behold, now I see you. God gave Job sovereign clarity. If God is big enough to keep you from suffering, isn't it true that he's big enough to have reasons for your suffering? Things you have to you have yet to understand, but you need to understand. And so if God can keep you from that, he's big enough to carry you through this, to help you to understand something that is lacking. You may have heard of God through the hearing of the ear, but he wants you to see him in a new and refined way in HD. Now there's wisdom here. But it is the kind of wisdom that does not come exclusively from an intellectual understanding of theology, not just going to endless Bible studies with your church friends. That's a great idea, by the way. Always go to Bible studies. But I'm talking about something that is added to an intellectual understanding of theology. The type of wisdom I'm talking about comes from a deep, soul-stretching and exhausting experience with the Lord. God taught Job about himself, about God Almighty. That is a different knowledge from what Job knew already from Sunday school or or from his Bible studies. He had received the Lord's instruction previously in his Bible studies. He learned how the Lord gives and how the Lord takes away stuff. He knew that faith comes by hearing God's word. Job, like us, was Christianized enough to have a basic understanding of the Lord. But what Job did not know was the difference between knowing God and seeing God. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Only after the undeserved horrific ordeal... In the crucible of suffering, did he transcend his his previously learned Christianity 101? God brought Job into a new experience of intellect and intimacy. Uh, Many of us Christians only have an intellectual understanding of God, but we haven't haven't, uh, experienced that intimate uh, relationship with God. 
You cannot see without hearing, and you cannot hear without seeing. The difference is between being in a religion versus a relationship. Intelligent people who are devoid of relational intimacy with the divine are religious people. Think about the Pharisees, the brightest of the bunch, the religious elite, but missing the mark when it came to really knowing God, intellectually on top of all things, religiously. But there was not an intimacy. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 23. Like You look great on the outside, but the inside is, is full of dead men's bones. Those with a relationship with God take religion to a new depth. Perhaps it would be best to say a, a new height, a transcending height. Paul was speaking to these things when he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. You hear the intimacy there, becoming like him in his death, Philippians 3.10. Now, he was a bright religious fellow, but there was one thing lacking, Paul didn't know God. Nobody surpassed Paul's intellectual intake and purported prowess. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a pedigree that inspired all from those like-minded religious zealots. And then God saved this religious man. And he realized that what he had, religiously speaking, amounted to animal excrement, there was something better. There was something deeper. There was an intimacy in God's heart that required God to burn away all credit, all self-glory, all accomplishment, and anything that would tempt a religious man to boast like those Pharisees, that bright religious bunch. Intellectual intake is the easy part. Intimate fellowship with God is a walk on the wild side that will always lead you into the crucible of suffering. Many of our brothers and sisters sit in church facilities every Sunday, and they hear great things about God, but their relationship with Him is no more profound than the words they have heard. If you desire to know God, you must crave a deeper relationship with Him. Christian maturity is taking what we know about God from all the learning that we have gained and entering into the crucible of suffering where we wrestle with God, pleading with Him to burn away all that hinders from knowing Him and to case-harden the vital truths that we must not ever lose. We meld our knowledge of God and our relationship with Him in the fires of suffering. And so the Lord took Job deeper into the heart of God, exceeding his knowledge of the Sovereign One. It was a place that transcended language, a place where God shattered the idols of his heart and built a new man that approximated Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said it this way in A Grief Observed. He said, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast, a person who attacks. 
Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? God shatters time and time again because our idea of God is not a divine idea. And so God in his mercy comes into our lives, as C.S. Lewis says in A Grief Observed, the book, that God has to shatter us. And it's the shattering that is one of the marks of his of his presence in every one of us there are wrong ways of thinking about god life and others and only suffering god the great iconoclast the one who attacks because it's only suffering that will root out these things in our souls in every one of us there are selfish ways of thinking that that we'll only see when god does not act like we think he should in every one of us, selfish thinking motivates us to serve God for our good rather than his glory. In every one of us, it's vital that we change. And though it sounds evil on the face of it, the iconoclast always attacking, actually, it's the kindness of God to lead us not into temptation, but through the valleys that remove anything that obscures what it means to know God in a univocal, undistracted way. And John Piper was thinking about these things when uh, he was doing some writing about the book of Job, and uh, he said this in part four of one of his writings on the book of Job. He said, so you think God was kind to make you sick? Jemima asked, and take away your health and all your sons, friends and daughters, all the ones that you loved? Jemima, what I think is this. The Lord has made me drink of his severity that he might kindly show me what I would be when only he remains in my calamity. Unkindly he has kindly shown that he was not my hope alone. John Piper is correct. This wordsmithing here, unkindly he kindly shows us that our hope is not in God alone. John Calvin said our hearts are like idle factories, never loyal to one deity, but like a, a lady window shopping, we saunter from one to the other, always looking, what lo always looking, loving what we see, but never fully satisfied. God created, created us for this purpose, to worship him and him alone. And if we put any other gods before him or equal to him, he will act upon us. It will feel unkindly, but God's kindness will, will lead to our repentance. Having mixed motives is not necessarily our fault. I talked about that earlier. We are fallen beings. We are born this way. To worship other gods or to want outcomes more than wanting the Lord most of all is part of the human cursedness. It doesn't make us odd, but natural, normal, needy. 
No matter how hard we try, we cannot get out of our way, so we need the Lord for our salvation and sanctification. Mercifully, God does not leave us alone after he saves us. He stays with us, always working, sometimes hurting, but relentlessly loving. He aims to conform us to the image of his son, an image Adam distorted. And now because of the gospel, there is hope for a reversal of the curse. There is purpose in the pain. There is a reason you are going through what is happening to you. The Lord is at work for your good. Though you might not be able to perceive all the good that He plans for your life, you must perceive that He is proactive, He is planning, He is persevering, He is preparing future blessings for you. And so with that in mind... I want to go back to how I titled this, Three Keys to Look Beyond Our Suffering. Three considerations to help you as you ponder what the author of your life is writing into your script. And as you hear these things, I I pray that you will ask the Spirit of God to open your mind to receive and to respond to how you need to change. So three keys to look beyond our suffering. One is He kindly humbles us. Now, I imagine you do not want to hear this, but I must say it. We are, we are proud people. We have a high view of ourselves, and we do not want to lower, we don't want to lower our self-esteem, our self-estimation in any way. Our culture demands that we esteem ourselves. There's an entire corpus of of self-estimation, a damnable doctrine that thrusts the individual into the center of the universe. Imagine a world where every person sits at its epicenter, demanding that everyone else esteem them more than they esteem themselves. Well, that is impossible. That leads to a competitive, individualistic environment where they, we are, it, it is demanded upon you that you esteem me more than you esteem yourself, and they, they express the same thing. Proud people want others to like them, to accept them, to love them. Anything that shines an unfavorable light on a high view of ourselves or disadvantages us in any way, well, it must succumb to the... To the council, uh, to the cancel mob, uh, because that is unacceptable. We are most loyal to ourselves, and only the Lord can impose Himself into our lives in such a way as to free us from this self sabotaging, cultural destroying bondage. Suffering humbles. Kindly, He humbles us, and humbling is what we need the most. If you frame this suffering-centered worldview like a loving parent with a proud child, what would be the process to free that proud boy from bondage? Do you cater to all of his whims and wishes? Does he become the sole determiner of what love should look like in his life? No, the loving parent will pray that that child comes to the end of himself, knowing the most expeditious way for that to happen is for him to let land face down in a hog lot somewhere. Is the parent unkind? Well, it depends on who you ask. The child will most assuredly believe it's unkindness, at least initially, It will feel like unkindness because there is no soft landing for proud hearts. 
The hope is that one day he will see what happened to him as kindness from a loving parent who wanted nothing more than for him to succeed in life. He kindly humbles us. That is one key to look beyond our suffering. Number two, he kindly vindicates us. During our seasons of suffering, it is impossible to see the future that will come from it. When my time, when my time came many years ago as God ushered me into the crucible of suffering, I couldn't see the future. It made no sense to me. I wanted to be vindicated. I wanted to be released. I wanted to be affirmed. I said it this way. It's like standing on the edge of time, looking into eternity and seeing nothing but nothing. Each day was like the last, making my future predictable. It was more darkness. And this diurnal exercise of the soul requires us to respond to the call of God upon our lives by trusting in his active goodness on our behalf. He will vindicate us. If you respond with humility, point number one, rather than anger or fear, you will have positioned yourself for an excellent and favorable outcome. It won't happen immediately. But it will happen in God's perfect time. Job's vindication in chapter 42 did not turn into vindictiveness from Job because he accepted the humbling of the Lord. That's why he kindly humbles us is the essential first key. Or proud hearts is go are going to rear up and we will vindicate ourselves and we will lash out and we will hurt other people. If you try to manage your pain through self-reliant means, you will prolong your pain and you will complicate your relationships. In Psalm 23, David said it this way, He restores my soul. God does. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. You see, suffering creates a pathway, a path of righteousness for you to follow. It begins with key number one, authentic humility, making you pliable rather than resistant, vindictive, makes you pliable in the Lord's hands. Your humility allows you to access the Lord's power rather than relying on yourself. And as you follow this path of righteousness, you will be at rest. In God's good timing, He will restore your soul. It happens as you walk down this path of right living that He provides for you, even if you find those pathways laced with suffering, and you most surely will. He will restore you because His name is on the line. He restores you for His name's sake. It's not my name. It's not your name that's on the line. You are His child. He is responsible for you. The book of Job is not a book about Job, but about God. It was the Lord who was on trial and the retribution policy that the devil was putting forth. Job does right and he will receive good, but if he does wrong, he will receive evil. Well, the Lord took away all that Job had and our old friend, our old friend held to his faith despite suffering mightily. The Lord was proven not guilty and vindicated his servant. Job's motive was better than what you thought, devil. And he was vindicated when his suffering was complete. 
In 1 Peter 2.23, it says when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't vindicate himself. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He kindly vindicates us. He kindly humbles us. He kindly vindicates us. And then the third key to look beyond our suffering, he kindly blesses us. Of course, there's a word of caution at this juncture. We want to be careful and not give in, believing we have no role to play. Well, if God is doing all this, I'm just going to sit back in my passivity and do nothing. No, we are responsible creatures interacting with our Creator. Uh, yeah, the book of Job was about God, but Job was a secondary causal agent responsible for his actions. We don't want to complicate our suffering by assuming the role of passivity as though God does not want to relate with us in any way. We must give, give ourselves entirely to God's total work, proactively stepping into his narrative for us, or we will find ourselves in opposition to his inexhaustible favor, his inexhaustible grace if we do not participate with him. Passivity is not a solution. Sinning in response to sin will bring more evil down on our heads, which is what Job did. And the Lord thundered hard down on Job's head. Then Job repented, and he was eventually vindicated. The blessing of the Lord comes through a person's willingness to die, a proactive response to suffering. And that is one of the most stunning pictures of the gospel. Jesus feared suffering in his future, asking to take this cup from him. He didn't want to experience it. Finally, he did relent, giving himself entirely over to the will of his Father. After he walked out of Gethsemane, guess what? His persecutors nailed him to a tree. Even after he repented, even after he humbled himself, as I said earlier, that path of righteousness is laced with suffering. And so after humbly submitting to God, things became worse. Do you want God's inexhaustible, unwavering favor? Of course you do. But do not be deceived about how these blessings come. It never occurred to me how the loss of everything dear to me in 1988 was the beginning of profound and undeserved benefits that could only come through the door of suffering. Like any loving parent, unkindly, he was kind to me. Three keys to look beyond your suffering. In his kindness, he humbles us. In his kindness, he will vindicate you. In his kindness, he will bless you. Thank you so much for listening. If we can serve you, please come to lifeovercoffee.com. Uh, we have a ton of resources for you. We would love for you to take advantage of them. You can read everything that I just shared with you. You can watch the video. You can listen to the podcast. Please take advantage of those resources. We also have a new topical course. It's called No More Fear, How to Overcome uh, the Fear of Man, How to Overcome Insecurity, Peer Pressure, Codependency. Uh, how to overcome being managed by people's opinions. Do you want to be free from controlling opinions? Check out our courses. Uh, the course I'm speaking of here is No More Fear. It, you can do it all online. You can do it at home. You can do it at your coffee shop. It's completely contained. You go through it. 
all online. It's easily accessible. I think it could be a transformative course for many people. And so if you know someone who struggles with fear of man, insecurity, peer pressure, please let them know about No More Fear. That could be a wonderful freeing course for them. Thank you so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.